Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, Carlos King. Carlos is an uber successful executive producer who owns Kingdom Rain, a full service production company here in L.A., He cut his teeth running shows like The Real Housewives of Atlanta for Bravo and, of course, my favorite reality show ever, Oprah, season 25, Behind the Scenes. He created and now produces the hit show for Own Love and Marriage Huntsville and the Netflix series Styling Hollywood. Carlos and I talk about how he started in reality TV, what it was like to meet Queen Oprah and how that show changed his life, why black reality stars are judged by a different standard than their white counterparts and how he transitioned from showrunner to running his own company. Okay, so I'm here Zooming with the Carlos King. Hello, Carlos. Hi, how's it going? It's good. I should also say, I didn't tell you this before, that my name is pronounced Eliza, not Eliza. You didn't say that, but I'm just say putting it oh, out no. there just in case. I, but I'm going to say this for the fifth time. Eliza, <laughs> I listened to you weekly before covid so let's be clear. This wasn't like, oh, I'm bored. I have, no, I was listening to you on my drive home. It's me and my Pomeranian Godiva. Aww. And from Beverly Hills to the Valley, Monday through Friday, I look forward to your podcast. And I mean that. Wow. I'm so honored. Okay, well, I picked the wrong person to teach my name to. Clearly, you're already a fan. Aliza, Aliza, Aliza. Yeah, I was on a Zoom with like 40 people earlier. And because the moderator called me Eliza, I changed the name on the screen to Eliza. And I put it in all caps with like 15 E's. And then when she went back to me, she still said Eliza. <laughs> like, this is not happening. You know what's so funny? That's that that's smart of you. You're such a producer. You're like, let me add so many E's in between the L and the Z. And I had never done that before. And I'm realizing I should probably do that on like all my network pitches because people just want to say Eliza. And I get texts from people who listen regularly if a guest mispronounces my name. And sometimes we're so deep into the podcast that it's embarrassing for me to correct them. So I just let it go. So anyway. This is all a long way to say hello, welcome, thank you for listening. I have obviously known about you for many years, and then I think you started following me on Twitter, and you kind of popped up on my radar, and I thought, oh my God, I have to have him on the podcast, and here you are. Well, thank you. It's it's an honor to be on this podcast, seriously. Well, I'm so happy to have you. Your name, obviously someone that I know and then came up through somebody else recently as someone I should have on. A shout out to Robin Latiker Johnson, who we, we love, Robin. <laughs> we love Robin, and I love giving her shout outs. I hope she listens still. Um, but also, I just want to have you on because you're a huge producer in our industry. You've done so many hit shows, and you did one of my favorite shows recently, Styling Hollywood. So good on Netflix. So labor let's get love. into it. Yeah, so yeah, let's no. start there. Why not? What was the labor of love about it? And that's, those are always the best ones, right? You know, totally. It was, you know what, Aliza, I am obviously a gay Black man. Shocker, I know. Um, so for me, it was the opportunity for, for a gay Black producer to do a show that features people who look just like me. You know, I'm very fortunate to be a part of this unscripted world where... I, you know, I really want to put people of color in front of the camera and behind the camera as well. And also the inclusion of my LGBTQIA plus community. So I've met Jason Adair back in 2014 and instantly knew there was a show here. To see this premier gay married couple who are African-American and they work with the biggest celebrities in the world from Ava DuVernay to Taraji P. Henson to Gabrielle Union. I said, oh honey, there's a show here. So for me, it was the opportunity to say, you know what, I am really going to work hard to make sure this show sees the light of day. And we pitched it back in 2015. 
Aliza, we flew to New York and we had all these pitch meetings and we had pitch meetings in California and we had five offers on the table, which, you know, as a producer is the dream. Long story short, Aliza, we had a presentation and you know how these presentation goes. Ugh. We had a presentation with the network that we just knew was a shoe in. We had Taraji P. Henson in an unpaid wow. fee in a presentation. So I, of course, was like, oh, I got Taraji P. Henson to be in a presentation, not a pilot, a presentation. And long story short, the show didn't go. I was shocked and devastated. We Can you say what network that was with? I don't want to get in trouble. If I mouth it, will you nod? Sure. Oh, you know what? <laughs> this is so such smart. good audio, right? <laughs> but no, what's funny is the sister network to that one had it first. Oh, interesting. Okay. You know what? I'll say it because he was actually on your show. Um, uh, now I have brain fart. Um, he used to be the head at E. He, he has a podcast too. Oh, Noah Pollock? Yeah. Noah Pollock bought it at E. Uh. Um, e at the time did not um, buy the show. It went to the sister network. They said, let's make this show more about staging. It didn't go at Bravo. And then we ended up at Netflix. And so it was one of those shots that was bought a million times before it finally landed. Yeah, yeah. And then who bought it at Netflix? Jan Levy. God bless. Had she seen it at Bravo? No. So we... It's funny. Obviously, when you have a presentation and the network passes on it, all the rights are reverted back to the production company. So all the rights were reverted back to me. So in our pitch meeting with Netflix, I said, I got the sizzle reel that's like seven minutes long, but I also got the presentation that's like 20 minutes long. She said, show me the sizzle. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, I'm like, but I got Taraji in the presentation. You mm -hmm. sure? And she said, show me the sizzle. Saw this sizzle. She laughed in the entire pitch meeting. The guys were present. And she said, I have all I need. Bye. And then over the course of a couple of weeks of her saying, not even saying, Aliza, asking questions. Do the guys do this? Do they have office space? All of those things. Because, you know, at Netflix, when you sell a show nine times out of 10, or maybe even 10 times out of 10, it goes straight to series. So before they buy a series, they obviously want to make sure that everything they're buying is real. And long story short, they bought it. Yeah, it's so funny because when you see it, it seems like a complete no-brainer. And it's amazing that it took that long only to get to the best place. Right. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because, you know, you're, you're, you're disappointed when you get a pass, when you, especially Aliza, when you know that you have something of substance. And I'll be honest with you, it was disheartening because for me, it was, I want to show more representation of the Black gay community in front of the camera. We're not just sidekicks. We're not the glam squad of, we're not the assistants of, you know, these guys have a rich, fulfilled life. So it was sad for all parties involved because truthfully speaking, you, you do sort of walk away thinking like, well, I'm trying to fight the good fight, but it seems like nobody wants us. And it took that, it took that level of energy to say, you know what? We just have to keep going and make the best person win. And we were happy to be at Netflix. Yeah. And it's so, it's such a typical story in a way, because it really is all about timing and the right person chiming to an idea and that all coming together at the right time. That's exactly what it was. And to be, listen, this is how amazing God works to be able to have this representation be seen in a hundred and 90 countries. Like that's the beauty of the story. And it was it was a magical experience. I really loved it. Did they end up adopting? 
I won't tell you, but I do have the answer. But you'll have to Ooh. say, yeah. Do we know but if there's going to be a second season? What's the story? We don't know. We don't know yet. Uh, but there's conversations. But the good thing, though, Aliza, is it was a show that really did break through the clutter on Netflix, and it was something that you just haven't seen before, at least with people who look like that. So regardless if the show comes back or not, I'll be honest with you, um, I'm just happy to be able to show something that was seen on that platform. And the guys got the best experience out of it. That's so gratifying. And it does take a while sometimes. I saw on your website that your show on OWN now, um, Love and Marriage Huntsville, that seemed like another labor of love Talk about that story, because that started with a consultation with you. Yes. Yeah, so what I do, Aliza, is, you know, as reality producers, whether you live in New York or Los Angeles, and in some cases, Atlanta, you're sort of in a bubble. And you really don't go out to Huntsville, Alabama <laughs> to find talent. Like, no one's scouting in Alabama. So I decided to do these pitch consultations where, Four feet, anybody's able to pitch me a show idea. And if it's something I'm interested in, I pursue it. Love and Marriage Huntsville came to me through the stars of the show, Melody and Marteau Hope. And for me, it was all about timing, as we spoke about earlier. So I met them in 2014. And three years later, I said, you know what? I think the time is now. And we were able to do an ensemble show about African-American couples who live in Huntsville, Alabama, and they are a part of um, this community in the neighborhood where they redevelop homes for lower income families. So it had the, the earnest side for the Oprah Winfrey brand, but it also had the sort of, you know, salaciousness that reality shows have without the fighting, of course, but just more so of really having the opportunity to enter the homes and see how black couples live in that part of town. And the show became a breakout hit. Our second season aired this past Saturday. The network really loves the show. It's sort of Oprah's first docuseries that has taken a life on its own. And I'm just so happy to be working with her again on something. Well, you just referenced, and if you listen to the podcast, you know this, you worked on my favorite reality show of all time with Queen Oprah. I can't even, I'm barely, I could barely get the words out. I'm so excited. So you worked on, and people are probably so sick of hearing about this, but I am obsessed with Oprah's 25 year behind the scenes. It was the first year of own true. Well, naturally original produced it. So how did you land on that show? And that's where you kind of started in the show running space. I know you were supervising producer on that. Yeah. So talk so, about that and what it was like. Uh, so listen, <laughs> I am a kid from Detroit who I, after school, I wasn't at a girl's house. Obviously I wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't playing basketball with, with my brothers. I was at home watching Oprah Winfrey with my mom. And being immersed as a teenage kid, like, oh, she is amazing. She's so deep. I love her. So fast forward, I am working on the Atlanta Housewives for, at the time, True Entertainment. And were you living in Atlanta or New York? Like, where were you? I was, I was living in New York. Okay. Living in New York, producing Atlanta Housewives and New Jersey Housewives. Ooh. Um, yeah, back and forth. So True Entertainment got the opportunity to be the production company to produce season 25 Oprah behind the scenes. And Lynette Rolov was the showrunner. And I was Lynette's producer on season two of Jersey Housewives. So you know how you work for a showrunner and you never think they like you? I thought Lynette hated me <laughs> for some reason. I was like, I'm not doing a good job. He thinks I'm horrible. I'm never going to work with him again because he thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> so when he got the job to do Oprah, 
he called me on a Sunday night. I'm watching Celebrity Apprentice. Oh, God. I pick up the phone and he's like, are you working on something? And I'm like, well, I'm actually rapping Atlanta Housewives. Why? He said, I may have a show that'll change your life. Would you be interested in living in Chicago for a year following Oprah? My exact words, Aliza, <laughs> was, girl, you're lying. And he's like, oh, my God. Amazing. He's like, no. I'm like, you get a show. <laughs> you get a show. You get a show. I'm like, say no more. I'm all in. Are you wow. kidding me? So I uprooted from New York to Chicago and was there for an entire year following Queen Oprah. Wow. I, I don't even know where to start on that. I don't know if you heard I had Sherry Salata on the show. Did you interact oh, I with- I love. She's I amazing. love Sherry Salata. Love her. Such a, a beautiful She's a rock person. star. Yeah. Absolutely. So how did it work on that show? Because there were so many different producers. There was a lot going on. Were you each assigned your own producer? Because it was meta, right? So like, were the producers assigned their own producers? Because you were following producers that were producing the Oprah show. Yeah, so typical with reality TV, especially when you're dealing with, let's say, Housewives. Um, as a producing team, you're sort of assigned to different Housewives just to have that sort of camaraderie that's needed for them to trust you. Mm -hmm. So we sort of ran through the gamut of, you know, this intersection of working with all the producers to really figure out who was our jam, who stuck with us. Um, and I had a lot of producers that I was, you know, lucky to follow. Candy Carter mm -hmm. is one of them. She just left The View as the first Black woman to executive produce The View. And they also won an Emmy um, two weeks ago. I follow Candy Carter um, and, a, and, a, and a host of other producers, Lisa Morin. And to be able, and it's funny, Aliza, because you can't produce producers. Right? It must have been so. Well, Sherry says she wouldn't have it. They'd be like, yeah, so we're going to need you for a three hour interview. She's like, you have 10 minutes. <laughs> and that was true. You had maybe 20 on a good day. Right. <laughs> um, it was hard. I'm not going to lie to you. It was hard to produce a producer because we know the tricks of the trade. And once we sort of figure out, listen, that person responds to you better. She likes you more. He likes you less. So we sort of figure out our groove of like, you go with that person. So Candy Carter is a good example of someone I was like, Listen, girl, I need the real. And once Oprah and her team, Sherry included, said to the producers, like, listen, it's no got you game. Right. I, you know, we hired this company to really show um, the audience what it's like to produce. So be real, be authentic. And at the end of the day, Oprah's watching the cuts. <laughs> so, yeah. And that's why I think I loved it yeah. so much, because it didn't feel produced. It felt so fly on the wall. It really was. Talk about a real reality show. Because you can't produce producers and they have a ticking time clock of their show being taped. So <laughs> what people didn't realize is they sometimes have two weeks a week to produce a live show or a pre-taped show, but all of the elements that came along with it. So here we are. And, you know, they're like, you guys did Housewives. I know what you want. And I'm not giving you that. Right. You, they, no, they would say that to us. I know what you want, Carlos. Not happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a great example because you do do a lot of, in quotes, loud programming, you know, and I think that that show actually is a great example. And let's face it. A lot of it is the star power of Oprah and kind of watching her minions like, you know, scared to death of her running around <laughs> trying to make her happy. You don't really need to amp that up because that's just fascinating to watch. But also that a show can succeed without having drama and backbiting and loud fights. You know, just the cold oh. stare of Oprah is good drama. <laughs> oh, honey, that's all you needed. And the, the first day I met the queen. Yeah. Oprah. So walk us through this, please. So Aliza, I am, 
I will never forget this day. Okay. It's more important than my 21st birthday party. <laughs> so I'm in the middle of the Harpo studio following a producer who is having a team meeting and <laughs> true story, a shadow. I'm not just like, I'm, I'm being honest. A shadow emerges from across the room <laughs> and I felt a, a unique force oh without God. seeing the individual. True story. I'm going to paint the picture for you. It was a shadow. I felt the room move. I felt this force. And I said to myself, wait, is Oprah here? Because at that point, we were there for two weeks and we never met her. So Oprah emerges. And my heart started beating fast. I was stoic. And at the same time, I was excited. But I kept my cool because I'm like, you are a professional. And at the <laughs> end of the day, I'm like, you're not going to be the black guy that goes crazy over Oprah. Like, you're not going to be that person. You're not. You're not. Stay cool. So I remained cool. And then over the course of a few weeks, she and I... You probably saw this episode where she and I had this legendary dialogue about the word gayer. Do you remember that, Aliza? Oh, God, I have the worst memory, but I okay. want to remember it so badly. Can it's you send okay. me a clip? I will. Okay. I, I, I will. Um, so long story short, I was there for maybe, I don't know, two, three months. And Miss Winfrey and I would exchange pleasantries in the hallway, like, hello, hi, you know, that's it. She's having conversation with Sherry Salata and her then publicist, and they go over, um, Oprah referred to someone as gayer, and the p publicist thought it was offensive. And Wait, then, referred to them as gayer, G-A-Y-E-R? Yeah. Like, yeah. what was the context? Um, it was Terry McMillan's ex-husband. Oh, right, right, right. And Oprah was like, I, I, I forgot the word and the way she described him, but she used that word. And Oprah was told it was offensive. And Oprah said, is it? And she asked her then chief of staff, who is a lesbian, if the word was offensive. And the woman said, I didn't think it was, and I'm gay. And the publicist goes, ask a gay male. So Sherry Salata and Oprah screams, is there a gay man in the building? <laughs> and then my um, team, uh, my audio supervisor, uh, talks to me in Milwaukee and says, Carlos, get in here now. You're being summoned. You're being summoned. So I walk in and Oprah goes, you're gay. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Um, but we had this amazing conversation about the word and if it was offensive. And I said, listen, as a, a gay male, I can see how people would deem that word offensive. And here are my reasons. And she allowed herself to be... Um, she allowed herself to be open to, okay, I'm hearing it straight from the horse's mouth. And because of that, he must be right. And to have that conversation documented for the world to see what Miss Winfrey doesn't even realize is I use that footage that was going to air um, on her network as, the, as my way of telling my father I was gay. What? My father... I did not come out to my father until he saw the episode. Are you kidding me? No. True How story. old were you? Sadly, I was maybe 30, maybe 30. Yeah. Wow. So you did you give him a heads up before it aired? No. No. I no. Uh, I <laughs> I know. Wow. I'm crazy. I, now you're just Midwestern. I, Detroit, like my father's like Joe Jackson, right? So <laughs> I I told my mom 
I told my mom when I was 25. And did she and say, don't tell your dad? No, she said, okay, because mothers know. Like, right. mothers know. But she didn't, were, you, were your parents together? They were together. And it just never came up? She said, are you going to tell your father? I said, no. And you should not either. And she said, it's your story. She said, you'll do it in your own time. So when I realized the episode was airing, I called my mom and I said, girl, <laughs> I came out on national television. Oh my God. And she said, are you going to give your father a heads up before he watches it? I said, I'm scared. No. My father watches the episode and I'm like trembling. He doesn't call me. My father goes on Facebook promotes the episode and says, I'm proud of my son for telling his truth. And I thought that was the sweetest thing. So what Miss Winfrey doesn't know is because of that conversation, the entire time she probably thought, oh, he's helping me. Little did she know that I was the one needing the help to be my authentic self. And that's the beauty of Miss Winfrey. She, without trying hard, she... She works with you courtesy of a real conversation and she can transform your life. And because of her, because I'm going to give her the credit, because of that conversation, because it was documented, I was able to have a coming out story, a coming out story for my father, who we're now Aliza, the best of friends. I'm really blown away. That's Quite a story, really, really moving. So what was your childhood like? And were you close with your parents? Very. So I am, <laughs> there's 10 siblings. It, so 11 total or 10? 10, 10 total. Wow. So it's 10 of us. I'm number five out of 10. So I'm kind of the middle kid, you know, a little crazy. <laughs> wow. I'll accept it. So. And where is everybody up- geographically now? Is everyone spread out? Me and my sister are in California. My baby brother is in Chicago and the rest of the family are still in Michigan. Got it. So So we're all spread out. So growing up with nine siblings, imagine that. This is before TLC did any sort of documentary on like John and K plus eight. It was, (laughs) you know, my father, my mom raising 10 kids in Detroit, Michigan. So my childhood was wonderful. It was full of love. But growing up, I'm Black, I'm gay. And in the 80s slash 90s, it wasn't, you know, acceptable, truly. And there there weren't any images on television of other gay Black men that looked like me. So I always felt alone. And in my isolation, I would watch endless hours of television as my escapism from my own issue that that I was having with my sexuality that I kept to myself. So again, it goes back to watching the Oprah Winfrey show, her living your best life segment in 1997 to watching the Cosby show, Roseanne, a different world. And I would just immerse myself in television that I knew when I got to college that I wanted a career in the field of journalism. Um, And then my life just took a turn to reality. Where did you go to college? I went to Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. When I left Michigan and moved to New York City, I went to Hunter College. Oh, my mom went there for social work. So once you, how did you fall into reality? Like what year was this? This was 2008. Okay. So at the time, I had a staff position at BET. I was an associate producer working on this show called The Five and doing sort of other special programming for the network. A friend of mine named Joy Chen, she knew I was obsessed with reality because at the time, The Hills was my soap opera. It was my Young and the Restless, my Bold and the Beautiful. And I was like, I don't know what this is. I'm obsessed with it. And think about it. I'm working at BET where 100% of the employees are Black. 
Right. And we had one TV to share amongst people in the cubicle. And I would turn the channel watching the hills. And everybody was like, what are you watching? I'm like, guys, this is the best reality show on TV. And did you know, Eliza, by the second week, they were like, Carlos, turn on the hills. You <laughs> to know what's happening with Hadi Montag and LC. You got them all into so, it. Yeah, so a friend of mine knew that. She got a job opportunity to produce a show about Black women living behind the gates in Atlanta for Bravo. And she approached me and said, are you interested in doing this show? It may be the housewives, we don't know. And I was like, uh, I'm comfortable, but you're right. If I really want to experience reality, I need to take a leap of faith. And I left New York for two months to move to Atlanta. And upon arrival, I was told, okay, as an associate producer, you are assigned to NeNe Leaks. Oh boy. Talk about walking right into it. Girl, yeah. What was Nini like at the beginning? Like, has she changed a lot or is this still the same Nini that you knew? You know, yes, she has changed. And yes, she is the same person that I know. And I'll, I'll get into that too, because it, it, it is very complex. But the first day I met Nini, I truly fell in love with her. And, yeah. and she her, you? Me. Oh, she would tell <laughs> other producers, mind you, Aliza, it's my first reality show and my only homework is The Hills. So <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing, but similar to how I felt when I saw Oprah's shadow, <laughs> when I met Nene, I was like, <laughs> she is larger than life mm. and a bona fide superstar. And we instantly had this connection to the point because I'm a whimsical gay guy, she would look at me and respond to me and <laughs> mimic me in front of the camera. And people had no idea what she was doing, but it was an inside joke between the two of us. And the next thing she knew, they kept asking for more like, oh, Nene, make those faces. Oh, Nene, <laughs> you do that. And the whole time I'm laughing because I'm like, she's mocking me and she's making fun of me and you guys don't even know that. Right, so but it was making good had, television. It was making great television. And we had that instant connection from day one. And so you went on, you rose up the ranks and you eventually executive produced the show and you actually led it to its highest ratings in season six. So season six, I was afforded the opportunity to be the showrunner of The Real Housewives of Atlanta. And I took that opportunity very seriously because... Number one, I was the first Black man to ever showrun a Bravo show, especially a Real Housewives franchise. And number two, that show was my baby. I was on the show seasons one through four. And I left season five to do another show. And when they called me back to do season six and to be in the driver's seat, I said, okay, I really need to like flex my muscle and make this happen. And we worked really hard to make that show a hit that season. And until this day, it is the highest rated season on not only Bravo, but the Housewives franchise, period. What was the main thing that happened that season? Like, why were the ratings so good? It was the first time that the audience saw the girls in a different light in terms of really, really peeling back the layers and the onion to expose what was happening in their households. So it was Portia divorcing her husband, the former NFL player Cordell Stewart, Phaedra and Apollo had this dynamic marriage when Phaedra thought Apollo was sleeping with Kenya Moore. Candy's mom became a bona fide star because she was just dating Todd Tucker. And Mama Joyce thought Todd Tucker was using her. And Mama Joyce took off her shoe to fight um, Candy's best friend, Carmen. We Mimi hosted a pillow talk um, party 
in a hotel and a big fight broke out between Kenya's friend and Phaedra's husband, Apollo. Um, God, you have a good re- memory. <laughs> yeah, the, the reunion was when Portia pulled Kenya's hair. It epic was this. It was the season. It was the the, the most epic season that that franchise ever saw. And, and did for you that, go my with, first time show running was crazy. Right? And did you go into that thinking, I'm going to make this the most lit season ever? Or did you get lucky or a combo? It was a combo. It was a combo. It was, listen, I am a hard worker. And I really, 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 really do work hard with my cast to make sure that we are telling an authentic story. I'm not one of those reality producers who goes the cheap way out, you know? I don't think a physical altercation means it's good television. I think the audience is much more savvy than that. They really want to know real stories, you know, real stakes. What does that look like? And if something happens like an altercation, then that just happens. But I didn't go in thinking any of those things. I went in thinking you have cultivated a rapport with these women since season one, and you better do a damn good job showing the network that you're able to do it. And to be completely honest with you, you know, listen, as a Black producer, especially being the first Black male showrunner, I knew that if I messed this up, that more than likely another Black man may not get an opportunity. And that's how we operate in this business as minorities. We know that only a few of us make it. So when I was the first, I said, make it good. And I had sleepless nights only because I wanted to make sure that I was doing a good job. So that was conscious at the time. You, you thought about that the whole time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's funny is, so I was a showrunner season six. Then I started my company in the middle of season seven. Um, and no, I'm sorry. Let me back up. So I was a showrunner season six. And before season seven started, I started my company. So I couldn't be the day-to-day showrunner for season seven. So what I did, I felt that, listen, I don't want to be the only Black man to produce this show on that level. So I met Anthony Sylvester. Hey. Who, yes, love Anthony. Love. Anthony, Anthony was a supervising producer on my first series that my company produced called Hollywood Divas for TV One. And I did that during the hiatus of Housewives. So when I came back season seven, I made sure Anthony came with me and I wanted to make sure that he was the second black man to do it. And he was, and we were happy to have that experience together. Do you think that for that particular show, it was easier to have a man show running it than a woman, given the dynamics of the women. I'm so curious. Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I, I will say this. I think it will, I think for sure it would be harder for a woman. Absolutely. Because from what I've seen, um, it, it is challenging for a woman to truly enter that space and and work with that dynamic personality that breeds aggressiveness without feeling like, okay, is this personal? Is is it just hard to like break that wall? So for me, I had the you know the opportunity to have relationships. But listen, I'm also a gay man and you know, I'm able to have certain dialogue with the women that that helps. Um, but yeah, I, I can totally see how difficult it would be for a woman to produce those type of shows. So you said that you left in the middle to start your own company and you've obviously gone on to great success. What made you want to do that? You know, I got tired of <laughs> I got tired of doing all the work with no credit. Mm-hmm. Just simply put. Yep. And I and remember had ideas. Think, yeah, and I had ideas and it's not and and the other thing I realized too because I, I'm such a student of television. So I study 
reality TV in, in, in a way that a lot of people may not, but I, I actually watch what I do in terms of the shows I produce. I watch my own shows and watch other reality TV. And I knew that 100% of the shows that feature an ensemble black cast was not produced by black people. And I would get phone calls from those black cast saying, come on our show, help us, we need you. And I said, I can either complain or I can be of the change that I'm seeking. So I took on that responsibility to start the company, not only to get the credit for the work that I was doing, but to also be a, you know, the incubator to produce more shows with people of color. I love that. And not just the characters, but behind the scenes as well. Yes, I wanted the the show, I'm sorry, I wanted my company to reflect the shows I'm producing and the producers behind the scenes too. Yeah, that kind of shocked me when you said that before you took over Housewives of Atlanta, there had been no Black showrunner. Like they had completely conceived of and built a show with an entire Black cast minus Kim Zolciak with a white showrunner. That's Now yeah. it seems kind of crazy. Well, what's funny is, so they... Leola Westbrook, who's a black woman, yeah. she she was the showrunner season four. And oh, okay. then I became the first black man season six. I see. But yeah, it was it was definitely interesting to sort of see that. So for me, it was the opportunity to say, once one person gets in the door, you bring other people behind you. One of the things I was doing a little research on you and um in an interview that you did with BET, I just want to read this because I thought this was a really interesting conversation point. I wanted to hear more about it. You said, and I quote, when it comes to white reality stars, no one says, look at Kyle Richards on Beverly Hills. She misrepresents us. Or my gosh, look at Snooki on Jersey Shore. She makes Italians look bad. I think that when it comes to the black race, we give each other such a harder time, which is totally unfair because we fight for equality and being seen in the same light as others, but we aren't awarded those same opportunities. We tend to be much more critical of one another. Wow. Talk about this. This, this is a powerful yeah. thing. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. When it comes to black reality shows, the main word that gets attached to our shows is ratchet. When, when, when the black cast are behaving badly, they're called ratchet. When Teresa Giudice is flipping a table, she's entertaining. When Snooki is drunk and running down the beach, she's hilarious. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's different rules for both races. I mean, you know what I mean? So yeah. it is different. And it's so disheartening because at the end of the day, everybody's behaving badly <laughs> on television. And if you want to talk about the genre of reality in itself, then fine, let's do that. But the issue has become Black reality stars get so much shade for their actions when oftentimes they're doing the same thing as their white counterparts. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Sean Rankin, when he was on, he was saying that it's also kind of what you're saying. It's sort of like a misperception of what's actually happening, you know, because of the lens that you're seeing it through, that a black character and a white character could do the exact same thing, but a black character might be expressing themselves, you know, bigger, and you see that completely differently. I think it's just really a matter of who's watching. No, 100%. And what's also interesting is it's the um, black race that, Mm -hmm. talks about the black female stars because in the black community when you're growing up you're told that don't act this way don't be the stereotype don't do that that's embedded in you as a kid so because that's in our minds growing up into adulthood when we see someone acting badly in air quotes that's what we say to them you're not supposed to show the world that because you're misrepresenting us and it's the unfortunate label that's attached to Black reality stars. What do you think of the backlash, though, right? Because there is a lot of criticism of those types of shows and a lot of the kinds of shows that you've done that, you know, that's not really advancing the Black community at all. You're actually doing the opposite. I'm sure you've heard that 
you know, overtly and also kind of whispers? No, I, 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 I've heard it in all various forms. Mm-hmm. And my response to that has always been, listen, I understand that when it comes to the Black race, we have a lot of work to do to be seen. However, not all of us are alike. And, and we have to get out of that crabs and a barrel mentality that this one Black woman represents an entire nation of Black women. It's unfair to us. It's unfair to have that sort of pressure on any of us. I am Black and gay. It does not mean I represent Black gay guys. I represent Carlos King. And in the midst of my success, I try to come across as somebody you can look up to to say, if he can make it, I can too. But please don't follow my actions because I'm not perfect. So I do think we, the Black community, we do ourselves a disservice when we publicly bash each other because the other communities don't do that. The, the, the Latin community, they don't do that. You know, so I think for us, it's, it's a matter of we really have to get out of this crabs and a barrel mentality. And listen, if you don't like reality, don't watch it. You have other options. But it doesn't mean you need to cancel all reality shows or cancel the women that are doing their best at figuring out life and making the world entertained <laughs> on this journey. And you're also creating these shows. So these are the shows that you like making. I mean, you could make different kinds of shows, right? I mean, you you like these kinds of shows as a viewer. And, and, and I'll take a step further. If you have a problem with the type of shows we're producing, don't watch it. <laughs> we enough. live in a business of consumer. If the number one show in the world was two people watching a cat play <laughs> on a couch, you know this, Aliza. All the network network would say, "What's our version of that?" Oh God, where's our cat? <laughs> where's ours? So I blame the consumer. Somebody's watching it. It's not. It's not just me. I'm only producing what I know people watch. But at the same time, there is a responsibility. When I started my company, I I made sure that because I was over it. But that's my personal growth. But it doesn't mean I judge anybody who may not have that experience. So for me, I'm very conscious of I'm not interested anymore with seeing a group of people physically attack each other and throw drinks at each other. I'm not into that. But that's me. I'm not judging other producers who produce that content. That works for you. Do it. You know? So I think we all have to do, like you said, what works for us and what we like to see. Yeah. I mean, I think that goes back to your story where we started with styling Hollywood, which is that kind of was the evolution of you as a producer, seeing something that you felt even represented you on screen that wasn't physical or crazy. And it was just a very intimate, fun, glassy portrait of two guys living together, living a fabulous life. No, bingo, bingo. And I'm happy that people got a chance to see that, truly. So I was really happy when we were texting before this, um, because I was obviously researching you and I saw that all your shows were through ITV. So I said, did you have a pod deal? Which for people not in the business means, you know, he's sort of a smaller company within a bigger company. And that you did that. And then you went off to start to, well, to continue your company, but to be a full service production company. Because part of what, a lot of these conversations have been that I'm having not just on the podcast, but of the podcast are about the lack of black producers having full service production companies and how to really move the needle in this industry. It has to be more than pod deals. It has to be more than partnerships. And you did it. You took that leap. So talk about what that actually means. So other people can understand it and what you think we can do to make that better overall in the industry. Yeah, so for me, listen, I appreciated every single, whether it was a pod deal or a partnership with the other production companies that I had to work with to build mine because I wasn't full service. And for those who don't know what that means is I didn't have the infrastructure, the office space, the edit base, the legal team, the accounting, 
production management, payroll, human resources. It's, it's, it's a lot to have a full service production company. But as I started to continue to work with a few companies is when I realized that I had a say in every single aspect of my shows, but I wasn't seeing the profit margins, just to be completely honest with you. And I thought to myself, yeah, no, I was just going to explain because I really want people to understand why and we don't have to get into actual numbers. But what happens in these deals is that usually you split the executive producer fee with the company that's the larger company. But that and this is not really a secret, but the way the production companies make their money is not really through that fee. It's through owning your own equipment and through finding other creative ways to make money. And like you said, when you're that pod producer, you don't see any of that. Sorry to interrupt. You don't no, I'm glad you did. You don't see any of it. And when you do see the small fraction you take home, it's a year later <laughs> because they have to say, well, the network owes us money. We have yeah. deliverables. And long story short, I just had enough. I had enough of doing all of the legwork without seeing the full profit of my hard work. And I knew that in order for me to truly be happy working as hard as I am working and making sure that my team of showrunners want to work for me, um, I had to step out and say, listen, I really need to be a full service production company. And it wasn't easy. So in my situation, you know, I had a group of investors who invested in the company and that way I was able to have the infrastructure that's needed, the office space and, and everything out, I outlined earlier so that I'm able to be the place where the buck stops here. You know, it, it, it's rare for a showrunner to have a company. Um, what you also sometimes learn working on these pod deals or working as a showrunner with other companies is Oftentimes the showrunner has, I'm not sorry. Oftentimes the company owner has no idea what you're doing. They mm -hmm. don't. And listen, it's sort of a slap in the face. Cause you're like, I'm really working hard to make you money and you have no idea what I have to go through. I'm not mad, but when you understand how the system works, you have to say, again, I can either complain or do something about it. And I wanted to do something about it because up until this point, Aliza, there wasn't a Black-owned production company ran by a Black male who knows how to produce reality docuseries and reality shows. Until now. Period. Yep. So it is hard, I think, to be a creative person who's a producer and then run a company where you are having to deal with accounting and all of that kind of annoying stuff that we may not love. <laughs> you have to see he's he's given a look. How is that? I mean, is it worth the rewards because your own boss and, you know, you get it, to run the show? Uh, Aliza, it's, it's night and day. It's night and day. If you haven't noticed already, I really do love what I do. Yeah. And I talk about it with, with such passion and conviction because I love it. And when you're stressed out in a situation and you have no control over it, mm. it causes more stress. And no matter how happy and, uh, and how much of an optimistic person you are, when you don't have the final say, it's, 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 for me, it just wasn't a good situation. So now, yes, talking about accounting and budget and all that stuff, I don't really care to talk about, but I'll be honest with you. I hired the right production executive to handle that. And she and I talk on a daily basis and it doesn't hurt that I like her <laughs> as a person. <laughs> So yeah. I don't mind talking to her every day and she's able to break down things to me in a very elementary way so that I'm able to follow along. And listen, don't be afraid of 
saying, I don't know this, or this really doesn't matter to me, hire somebody where it does matter to that person and hire somebody that will take the time out to explain it to you. So I'm able to go to work every day and not have to whisper in the corner because I'm dissatisfied with the way the company handled my project. I'm dissatisfied that the company was too busy trying to save a dollar that it cost me my development project. Like those are things that I don't have to worry about anymore. So although it's tougher and everything I'm I'm responsible for my whole staff, especially during this COVID pandemic. But at the end of the day, listen, I am blessed and fortunate enough to just have everything on my own. So to other black producers who are looking to make the leap, I mean, you mentioned you had a group of investors and I do think that it really just boils down to money and somebody giving you that opportunity. What should they do? Where do they start? Yeah. I mean, listen, if you are a black producer and you want to start your own company and you need the, the financial backing, there are several, several investors who have the capabilities of investing in company, whether it's um, you're with a big agency and they may have some backing, whether it's, you know, listen, we work in an industry where we get to meet different types of people every day. And a friend knows a friend of a friend of a friend. And I think you have to, you have to do your homework, you know, don't let these networks get off easily saying, Hey, they don't exist. So we don't hire them. Yeah. Like that, that, that stops. And what I love about your podcast, Aliza, for the past couple of weeks, when you had Anthony Sylvester and Sean Rankin and Tony Juckins, and you recently had other black female producers in that form, is the opportunity for the world to recognize we are here and we want the opportunities. And listen, because of what has been happening in the world, <laughs> my phone has been off the hook. I've had <laughs> Nep Aliza. It is a good time, isn't it? <laughs> Girl, I've had networks reach out and say, hi, um, what are you doing? We may have something for you or pitch to us. And it's funny because on one hand, you're kind of like, I've always been around. But listen, I think as long as you're able to say, if this is what it takes for us to have the introduction, let's do it. But I want to be able to show and prove. I don't want any handout. I want to be able to show and prove. And that was the other thing that was hard for me. I am a bona fide showrunner that had tons of success in the unscripted space. And you would think that it would be easy for me to transition. And it wasn't. It was hard. It's hard for the network to see you from a field producer to a showrunner. You know, it's hard for the showrunner to be a company owner and for the network to see you differently. So I'm still navigating through those troubled waters. But again, the more series you have, the more other networks will wake up and want to be in business with you. It's true. Yes, I'm going to... I had a whole other rabbit hole conversation to go down, but I want to talk to you when we hang. It's just too much for this podcast, but let's pick up on that in a minute. What are your goals for your company moving forward? I want to be known as a black owned company that can do a plethora of diverse programming, whether it's diversity and race and sex and class and religion. I, I want, I want different type of people who have it interesting story to feel comfortable coming to the company, knowing that when they're in the business of my company, Kingdom Reign, that they're also in the business of Carlos King. Because again, networks are into me. And what I had to do was make sure that they were also into my staff and the programming that we're pitching to them. So I really want to start getting into documentaries. I just sold a show where we 
it's a COVID proof show, <laughs> uh, which was which was interesting to come up with that during that dark time. Right. But it's a I love E True Hollywood story. I love Unsung on TV One. I love those biographical documentaries. So to be able to sell a project that has that quality, you wouldn't think I would be able to make that or want to make that. So to be able to have these meetings with networks has been great. And I want to be known as the company where we do loud programming with interesting personalities, but at the same time, it's elevated storytelling and the shit looks good. Ooh, I love that. That is a great mantra. This has been such a great conversation, Carlos. I am so grateful to talk to you. Thank you for sharing your story and every all the advice and your experience. I think that hopefully people will really be able to pick up on it and use it. And where can people follow you on social media? Yeah, so on Instagram and Twitter, it's at the Carlos King underscore. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Aliza. 